Please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Tempted and tried. The temptations of Christ. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, It is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Satan tempted our Savior in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. The New Testament doesn't list for us all of the temptations that occurred during that lengthy period. It only mentions the final climactic temptations. These three temptations that are recorded in the Gospel of Matthew are the secret weapons in Satan's arsenal. His last-ditch effort to prompt Christ to disobey the Father and sin, thus disqualifying Him to be our sinless Savior. I think that these temptations were the most powerful because In part, they're the most subtle. In fact, we sometimes scratch our heads and wonder, well, why would it have been wrong for Christ to transform the stone into loaves? Why would it have been wrong for him to cast himself down from the temple, for example? And because of their subtlety, these are some of the favorite temptations that Satan uses against followers of the Lord Jesus today. We're all on our guard against obvious temptations to sin. We know to reject the allurements of drugs and alcohol and the seductor or the seductress. But temptations like these may seem so harmless that they creep into our lives and catch us completely off guard. And yet these sins that are addressed here are grave enough 
that if we were to succumb to them, they would destroy our testimony, our Christian ministry, harm our fellowship with God, just as surely as they would have destroyed the ministry of our Savior. And as the Lord Jesus responds to these three temptations, he expounds some important principles that can prevent us from falling prey to these subtle allurements, especially in the culture that we live in with all of its materialism, with all of its value that it places on comfort and pleasure. The first of these principles is obedience is more important than our next meal. Jesus has been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, and such a fast was extraordinary. The Jews normally fasted for just one day, sometimes three days at a time, but Christ fasted 40 days and 40 nights. And the fact that both days and nights are mentioned implies that the fast was unbroken. This wasn't Ramadan with fasting during the day and feasting in the evening. This was continual and perpetual hunger for weeks and weeks and weeks. Naturally, by day 40, Christ is famished. He is extremely hungry. And Satan seeks to take advantage of his intense craving for food by saying, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Now, why would it have been sinful for Christ to exercise his miraculous power in this way? A number of different explanations for this, but I'm convinced that it would have been a simple act of disobedience because God had commanded this fast. We're told by Matthew that it was the Spirit that led Christ into the wilderness for this season of testing. And Christ was not to break his fast until the season of testing was complete. Now, it's possible that God had commanded his son to fast 40 days and 40 nights specifically. And this would make sense because it would bring the fasting of the Lord Jesus into parallel with the fasting of Moses in the Old Testament. Moses fasted 40 days and 40 nights specifically when he received the law, Exodus 34, 28, Deuteronomy 9, 9. And then he fasted 40 days and 40 nights specifically when he pled for God to restrain his wrath against the Israelites when they were faithless and disobedient at Kadesh Barnea, Deuteronomy 9:18 and 10, 10. And by fasting in a manner similar to the way the Old Testament Moses fasted, it would demonstrate that Jesus was the fulfillment, as we've seen in past study, of Deuteronomy 18, that prophecy about the coming of a prophet like Moses, who would speak with God's own authority. And everything he commanded, God's people were obligated to obey. 
By highlighting his similarity to Moses, the Father is testifying to the fact that Jesus is the new Moses who will lead us on a new exodus, delivering us from our slavery to sin and Satan, setting us free so that we can live life a new and different way. And as the new Moses, he is the mediator of a new covenant, the law of God written on our heart and compelling us from within to do what is right, holy, and good. It's also possible when the Father commanded this fast that he didn't specify the exact number of days that the Lord Jesus was to fast. That was left indefinite, open-ended, and the Father would signal when the fast was to end through some sign. We discover at the end of this account that when the period of testing was complete, angels appeared and they, quote, ministered to him. And the verb minister, diakoneo, means to serve food like a table waiter. And the idea is that God the Father, through his angels, would provide food to the Lord Jesus directly when the time of fasting was complete. But this much I am certain of. For Christ to have broken his fast prematurely would have been an act of disobedience, and it would have meant that he no longer did what was described back in Matthew chapter 3. He would no longer have fulfilled all righteousness, and thus he would not have been qualified to be our sinless sacrifice. Jesus was to end this fast at the appointed time and not before. And so Jesus replies to the devil, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This is a quotation of Deuteronomy 8, 3. Many interpreters assume that what proceeds from the mouth of God is his powerful decree that provides for all of our physical needs. God speaks into existence the food that we need to survive. But the ancient rabbis argued that what proceeds from the mouth of God in Deuteronomy 8 is actually a reference to his law, his commandments. And I'm convinced that in this case, the ancient rabbis were correct. Why? Because in the context of Deuteronomy 8.3, there is a huge emphasis on obeying God's commands. We see it in Deuteronomy 8.1, Deuteronomy 8.2, Deuteronomy 8.6. And we actually see a strong parallel between Deuteronomy 8.1 and 8.3 in that Deuteronomy 8.1 stresses that man lives by God's commandments, and 8.3 stresses that man lives by what proceeds from the mouth of God. In other words, God's commandments are what proceed from His mouth. So the Old Testament is not merely saying that God speaks into existence as Creator what we need to sustain our physical lives. He's saying our very lives depend on obedience to what God has commanded. Now, when Jesus says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, what he's saying is, 
Obedience to the Father's commands is more important to me than my next bite of food, even after 40 days and 40 nights of essential starvation. Jesus is illustrating by his own example here what he would teach in the Beatitudes when he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Christ hungers for righteousness more than his next bite of food. He thirsts for righteousness more than his next sip of water. In John 4, Jesus' disciples scold him from skipping lunch, and they say, Rabbi, eat. Christ says, I have food to eat that you don't know about. And the disciples begin to speculate. Maybe somebody slipped him something to eat when we weren't watching, but Christ says, no, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. What he's saying is, my obedience to the Father matters more to me than lunch, and for that matter, supper, and for that matter, breakfast. Obedience to God matters more than satisfying any physical need. And having a love for obedience and righteousness that transcends our love even for life's physical necessities is not just a standard for the Messiah alone. It is a standard for every disciple of Jesus Christ as well. That's why in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus will say, you don't need to worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. No, redefine your priorities. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Now, it is no secret that we live in a culture that adores food, maybe even worships food. So much so that in the last decade or so, we've actually invented what some consider to be a new art form. It's referred to as food porn. And what that involves is cooking a wonderful meal or going into a fancy restaurant and then taking a picture with your cell phone of that steaming plate of food and then sending that picture to all of your friends so that they will salivate over what you are about to enjoy. When you really think about it, it's kind of disgusting. It shows that food has become an obsession for some of us. We have an adoration for food that rivals worship. Imagine then what a difference it would make in our lives if we loved righteousness as much as we enjoy our favorite cuisine. Imagine the difference if we were gluttons for goodness with an insatiable appetite for obedience. If we read the commandments of God with the same enjoyment as the menu at a fine restaurant, if we adored even the least of God's commandments as much as we like our favorite dessert. And Christ is showing us by His example that we must learn 
to love obedience even more than our next meal, even more than the necessities of physical life. I'm afraid that obedience has fallen on hard times. Uh, many in the church today have fallen into the heresy called antinomianism. And they essentially say, since we're saved by grace through faith, how we live doesn't matter. Uh, it's like the false teaching Paul had to combat in the epistle to the Romans. Let's continue in sin that grace may abound. And make no mistake, the Christian life is to be a life of obedience in which we have surrendered to the authority of Jesus as our King, and we seek to obey the decrees of our King. When I was in the first grade, my family moved from Northeast Mississippi to Huntsville, Texas, so my father could pursue his PhD at Sam Houston State University. It was hard to move from our old farm of several acres in Mississippi to this tiny little yard in Texas. The yard was so steep that you could barely play in it when you were standing on your own two feet. When I received my first real big boy bicycle on Christmas Day, it was even more frustrating because I had to ride my bike around and around in this tiny little circle in the carport. The yard was too steep to get it in the yard. And so I begged my dad and begged my dad, will you please let me ride my bike in the street? Our street wasn't very busy, so he finally relented and allowed me to do that. And I was riding my bike in the street while my dad was working under the hood of our car doing some repairs. And I heard my dad say, Chuck, get out of the street. Well, I intended to. But I meandered my bike just a little bit further, you know. I was going to get around to eventually obeying my dad, and I heard him shout even louder, Chuck, get out of the street! And before I could blink, my dad, who was a pretty big man, raced down that steep yard across the street, jerked me and my bike up and dove to the sidewalk on the other side about the time that a car went racing by that I was completely unaware of. If he had not intervened, I probably would have been struck and killed. And I vividly remember my dad grabbing me by the shoulders and looking into my face panicked and saying, Chuck, your disobedience nearly cost you your life. From now on, when I tell you to do something, I want you to do what I say, when I say, how I say, no questions asked. Do you understand? And I said, yes, sir. And from that day forward, I tried to fulfill that commitment. Because it suddenly had dawned on me that when my dad gave me an order, it wasn't because he was trying to rob me of my fun. It wasn't because he didn't want me to have a good time. It was because he knew things that I didn't know, and he more wisely recognized what was best for me. 
Uh, we serve a heavenly Father who loves us far more than my dad loved me and who is far wiser and more knowledgeable than my dad could ever have been. And when he issues us a command, it's not intended to inhibit us. It's not intended to rob us of our joy and pleasure. It is always, always what is best for us. And Jesus, by his example, shows us that when the Father issues a command, we are to do what he says, when he says, how he says, no questions asked. And not only is obedience more important than our next meal, faithfulness is more important than our safety and our comfort and even our very lives. Satan whisked the Lord Jesus to the tall precipice of the temple. It was a towering height. Josephus, that first century Jew in his histories, tells us that it was so high that you literally could not see the Kidron Valley below. And the people from that distance seemed to be nothing more than tiny specks. Satan says, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. He even quotes an Old Testament psalm out of context to imply that the Father will supernaturally protect the Lord Jesus even if he has the audacity to gamble with his life. And Christ replies, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Those words are a quotation of Deuteronomy 6.16 and refer to the event at Massah in Exodus 17. Remember at Massah, the people were literally thirsting to death, and they began to doubt that God was with them, for them, and loved them until God miraculously saved them by bringing forth a stream of water from Morak. And the scripture says, they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Jesus, by replying to the devil in this way, shows that if he had fallen prey to Satan's temptation, he would have had the same weak and puny faith of the Israelites at Massah. He would have had the kind of faith that trusts God only when God miraculously intervenes to spare us from hunger and thirst and harm and injury and pain and suffering. It would imply that God is worthy of our trust when every leap of faith is answered by Him sending His angels to grab us as we tumble through the air and with a powerful thrust of their wings gently lowering us to the ground so that we do not so much as stump our foot against a stone. This testing of God would imply that he is worthy of our trust only when he delivers us from tragedy. In other words, Satan's argument here implies a very dangerous theology. God is worthy of our trust only when he rescues us from suffering and danger and harm. 
But Jesus, by his response, says, no. God is worthy of our trust, even when he allows us to suffer. Yes, indeed, even when he causes us to suffer. Faith doesn't just trust when God miraculously comes to the rescue. Faith perseveres even when the rescue doesn't come. God's not just worthy of our trust. If we cast ourselves down from the pinnacle of the temple and He miraculously spares us from harm, God is worthy of our trust even if we stumble from that towering height, go plummeting through the air, and fall on the rocks of the Kidron Valley, breaking every bone, rupturing every organ, and choking on our own blood. Christ is worthy of our trust even then. It's no accident that when the Lord Jesus suffered on the cross, those who taunted him essentially echo the words of the devil here. Like the devil, they say, if you are the Son of God. But now they say, come down from the cross. The same faulty theology, if you're really the Son of God, if God really loves you, if God really cares for you, He will not allow you to suffer in this way. And they, like Satan, even quote an Old Testament psalm to argue that God would rescue Christ if He really loved Christ. But Christ didn't have the superficial faith that only trusts when life is easy and when things go the way that we want. He had real faith that trusted the Father even when his back was bleeding from a brutal scourging, even when nails had been driven through his hands and feet, and even when the Father, who could have sent 12 legions of angels to rescue him, chose to let him suffer instead. Jesus trusted even then. There are Old Testament saints that exemplify this same real faith. I think of the Old Testament Job. as a man who lost almost everything. Raiders kill his servants. A lightning storm kills his flocks and herds. The Chaldeans steal all his camels. A tornado destroys his sons and daughters. And yet even in his grief, Job replied, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God allows Satan to strike him with a horrible disease that covers his body from head to toe with painful boils. And Job's wife urges him, just curse God and die. And Job replies, shall we only accept good from God? and not also adversity? And in Job 13, 15, he says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That's real faith. I'm struck by the faith of Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
Nebuchadnezzar says that anyone who doesn't bow down and worship this idol statue of me will be thrown into the fiery furnace and painfully, agonizingly consumed. And those men refuse to bow down. The king gathers them up to throw them into the furnace and they peer into those towering flames. They hear the roar and crackle of the fire. And they turn to Nebuchadnezzar and say, Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. And we read that and we think, Oh, that's real faith. They're trusting God for a miracle against all gods, all odds. No, we haven't seen faith yet. Because after saying, Our God will deliver us from your hand, they then add, but even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And what they're saying is real faith doesn't just trust when there's a miraculous intervention. Just when God comes to the rescue, Real faith perseveres even when the fourth man doesn't show up in the fire to protect us from the blaze. Real faith perseveres even when the smoke of the furnace stings our eyes and its flames char our flesh and our bones are melted in agony. Real faith perseveres even in the face of torture and martyrdom. And the Lord Jesus, by his example here, shows us that the greatest faith is not the faith that moves mountains. The greatest faith is not the faith that naively believes that God's people will always be healthy and will always be wealthy and will always be happy living their best life now. Real faith is not the faith that always trusts God for a miracle. Real faith is the faith of a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Real faith is the faith of Job. And real faith is the faith of the Lord Jesus. It perseveres even when our circumstances do not make sense. Real faith is not just a faith that endures when angels intervene and offer protection. Real faith trust even when we're battered and broken and God seems a million miles away. Real faith trusts even then. Obedience is more important than our next meal. Faithfulness is more important than our safety, our security, our health, our wealth, our very physical lives, our comfort. And worship is more important than wealth. Satan whisks the Lord Jesus to a tall mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the earth and says, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Had Jesus been willing to worship Satan, to strike this bargain, it would have indicated that he valued the creation 
above the Creator, the kingdoms of the world above the King of heaven and earth. But Christ recognizes that there is nothing in this world that is worth turning our back on the God who alone is worthy of our worship. We sang about that this morning, didn't we? Behold our King, nothing can compare. Come let us adore Him. And the Lord Jesus responds to the devil by quoting the Old Testament again. You shall worship the Lord your God and Him only shall you serve. This fits with the priorities the Lord Jesus outlined for us in the Sermon on the Mount. Christ will say, don't treasure what's on earth because all this is temporary and transient. Moths destroy earthly treasures. Thieves steal earthly treasures. Vermin devour earthly treasures. And then he warned, where your heart where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And what Christ is saying is our heart belongs to what we treasure and value most. And if we treasure earthly things, it shows that we are possessed by our very possessions. Because the fundamental commandment of the law was love the Lord your God, not with some of your heart or most of your heart, but with all your heart. And if our heart belongs to what we treasure and we are treasuring earthly things, it shows that we have committed the sin of idolatry and false worship. We have given to our possessions the heart that should belong to God alone. When Bev finished his Bible training in Ottawa, Ontario, he moved to New York City for vocal training. He had a powerful baritone voice that people loved to hear. The audition went very, very well, and he was offered the job. And he said, I'm so excited about this. I can't wait to start singing songs about Christ on the radio so that people will be drawn to him. And the managers of the station said, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not what you're going to do here. Uh, you might sing a Christian hymn at Christmas, maybe at Easter, but what we want you to do is sing the secular hits that are in the top ten at the moment. And Bev didn't know what to do. This didn't seem to fulfill the calling that accompanied his gifts. Frustrated, he went to his house to think over the matter. He slept on it. The next morning he got up and sat at the piano because his mother had found a poem that she wanted him to put to music. And as he read the words of that poem, he immediately knew what he had to do. Because the poem said, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. I'd rather be true to his holy name than to be the king of a vast domain or be held in sin's dread sway. 
I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. He declined that dream job at the New York radio station, and soon after that, he was offered another job at a Chicago radio station where he could sing the gospel songs that meant so much to him. And it was in the context of that ministry that he met a, a young and at that time relatively unknown young evangelist named Billy Graham. And the two became a ministry partnership, singing and preaching all around the world and leading countless thousands to faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord. All because he recognized that we should worship the Lord our God and Him only shall we serve. All because he recognized that the cost of discipleship isn't keep on living with your old priorities and squeeze Christ in wherever it is convenient. No, that the call of discipleship is if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. He must take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Christ understood what he was preaching by experience because he was a man who was offered all the kingdoms of the world and spurned the offer for the sake of souls. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I'd say, woo, it sounds like the Christian life is a life of sacrifice, valuing obedience above our physical needs, trusting Christ even when life is hard and painful, worshiping Christ alone even when it involves the sacrifice of wealth and fame and popularity, uh, those are meager sacrifices because of the sacrifice that Christ offered for us. The Lord Jesus lived the perfect life that we cannot live and went to the cross to be punished for our sins and our place so that we can escape the punishment we deserve. He was scourged for us. He was nailed to the cross for us. He was speared for us. He endured the wrath of the Heavenly Father for us so that our sins can be forgiven and we, who were the enemies of God, can become the friends and children of God. In other words, the sacrifice that Christ made for us was so enormous that any sacrifice we offer Him is paltry by comparison. And we should offer it without hesitation, without a blink of the eye. I invite you to surrender all to Christ today.
to confess your sinfulness to Him, to ask Him to be your Savior who rescues you from the punishment your sins deserve. Ask Him to be your King and devote yourself to His humble service and worship Him as your God. And when you by faith trust Jesus as God, Savior, and King, you'll begin to understand how precious the sacrifice Christ made in our behalf truly is and how worthy He is of any demand He imposes on us. If you want to trust Christ as your God, Savior, and King today, when we sing in just a few moments, I invite you to come forward and tell one of our church leaders about your decision, and they'll answer questions that you might have, pray a prayer of thanksgiving for what God has done in your life, and then we'll tell you what the next steps are as a new Christian. The reality is most of us in this room have been Christians for a long, long time, but it's very, very possible that our priorities have gotten way out of whack. Some of us are more concerned about the ticking of the clock and the meal that awaits us after this worship time than we are about what God expects of us and wrestling with the decision of whether to offer it to Him. No, the Scripture says obedience is more important than our next meal. Some of us are disillusioned with God. We're disappointed with Him because things didn't turn out like we want. We expected the Christian life to be smooth sailing with no difficulties. And life's been much, much harder than we ever thought it would be as a Christian. Remember today that faithfulness is more important than our comfort and safety and security. Have the faith of a Job, of Daniel's three friends. Have the faith of the Lord Jesus that perseveres even when life is painful. And some of us are caught up with worldly distractions, and we're so concerned about accumulating wealth and achieving fame and popularity that our devotion to Christ is on the back burner. And Christ urges us by His example to remember that worship is more important than wealth and anything this world has to offer. So what Christ asks of us is that we evaluate our priorities today and make sure our priorities are in line with those of His own heart. It may be that some of you want to come forward during our time of invitation and kneel here at the front of the church and recommit yourself to wholehearted devotion to the Lord Jesus and to any sacrifice He should ask of us because He is more than worthy of it. Dear Father, we pray that everyone would be moved by the example of our Savior to a life of wholehearted devotion, a life of persevering faith, 
a life of sacrifice and of service. We pray that you would move lost sinners to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus as God's Savior and King so that they can share our eternal hope. We commit this invitation to you because we believe, like the old hymn says, all is vain unless the Holy Spirit comes down. And we pray that the Spirit of the Holy One would come down now and move us, compel us to make the commitments that need to be made. In the precious and powerful name of the Lord Jesus, amen.